You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show, where we'll begin on reflecting on the year like we have been doing for the past few days now. Uh, we started in from January, and now we've made our way all the way up today to October. So that's what we've been up to for the last uh, week, and we have been uh, quite fortunate to have had some fantastic interviews with some brilliant guests that added so much insight and value to our topics and our discussions that we Uh, took upon ourselves to discuss but today it is that we will be talking and taking a look back at the month of October on the drive time show and how we covered I mean when I reflect on it personally I see that month as a very heavy political uh, moment where so many decisions were taken and so many of those decisions affected our lives in so many different ways and so we saw things like where there were 50,000 rail workers that went on a 24-hour strike and that was the biggest to date with only 11% of train services running in the UK. When's the last time you ever saw that happen and also in the following month we saw a backlash the government announced the cancellation of their plans to abolish the highest income tax bands and a lot of people were very surprised as to why is it as the political field and the economics of the incumbent government were giving tax relief to the very wealthy and putting the burden on the hard-working people and it was there very clearly another u-turn and also at the same time the Bank of England warned of a material risk to the financial stability as the government's borrowing cost arise sharply again. And these were big, strong warning signs where they had to step in. And then also in relation to the cost of living and everything else which we were suffering, you had Just Stop Oil protesters throw tomato soup over the Vincent van Gogh of the 1888 masterpiece Sunflowers in the National Gallery and probably many of you were very surprised and upset by that as well because of ruining such a wonderful masterpiece and then if you remember at that time when I just gave a little bit of introduction of the some of the biggest problems where the Bank of England was warning of material risks, we had Kwasi Kwarteng who was dismissed as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Exchequer as uh, he became the second shortest serving Chancellor in the UK's political history after Ian McLeod, who died of a heart attack in the 1970s. And in in Downing Street press conference, Truss confirmed her reversal of her plan to scrap the increase in corporation tax and admit it is clear that parts of our mini-budget went further and faster than the markets were expecting. And I would add on there, you don't say, as many of our mortgages of those people who had mortgages and mortgages that were coming up suddenly had a hike and those who were looking for mortgages, they were taken away because they weren't able to 
validator weren't able to offer those anymore. It was a very worrying time. And then coming near to the end of October, we saw Liz Truss announcing her pending resignation as Prime Minister just after 45 days. And we also know that uh, our current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has actually surpassed her record and stayed in power for longer and he's still there than the 45 days and her tenure will be the shortest of any prime minister in the united kingdom's history and then rishi sunak who became the next leader of the conservative party and the prime ministers designated after a big run run up between him and penny morden the only other contender who dropped out of the leadership and he is the uk's first British Asian Prime Minister and at the 42nd the country's youngest leader in over 200 years and that must be a very proud moment for so many people who have aspirations that we can although you may not be an English uh, indigenous white person you can have aspirations as Rishi Sunak became the leader of the Conservative Party and subsequently became the Prime Minister. Uh, and that was a, a magnificent moment too, you know, for our country in a way. But many of us will say, well, that was very short-lived because the, um, the government just carried on continuing the way it normally does. Well, anyway, away from the UK, uh, we also saw Elon Musk, who many people know with the Tesla car company. He also completed his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter. And most people are seeing how Twitter has changed and, and what's been going on. So it was a very interesting month, October, because we, we also saw that at least 156 people were killed and another 152 injured in a crowd crushing during a Halloween festival in Seoul in South Korea. And then we had the collapse of the suspension bridge in Gujarat in India, which left at least 141 people dead. I mean, that was a quick whistle tour um, of that month. But how else did the drive time keep us listeners informed? And there was so much more that we covered from topics about populism, as you know full well, many of our European uh, nations are electing right-wing individuals. And that was a, a very interesting moment as we covered that, which I will be playing you a number of interviews from that. We also talked about regret, you know, the effects of one's regret and lying. Not lying down, but actually not speaking the truth is what we discussed. And then also the restoration justice, which is a very interesting topic and how people look to finding another way of providing a justice system and I mentioned earlier about the uh, very sad situation in South Korea when we had the Halloween festivities where a number of people were injured more than 152 were injured and there were 156 people that were killed and then we'll take a, um, an interview that we did about Halloween on that day as well so we're gonna what I like to do now is play a 
interview that we had with Dr. George Nweth, who is a lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Bath. And he's a researcher studying populism and the far right and is writing a book on the Lega Nord, which uh, we would like to obviously enlighten you a lot more. But here was his interview that he did with our presenters in the month of October. Here you are. Uh, Dr. George is a lecturer in politics and uh, and international relations at the University of Bath. He's a researcher studying populism and far right and is writing a book on the Lega Nord. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Dr. Newt, let me start by asking, let me straight, uh, uh, take you straight to Italy. How concerned yes. do you think we should be about fascism, given that uh, the country's uh, first far, far-right leader has been elected since World War II? I mean, yeah, she's, she's definitely the first um, kind of far-right politician with a neo-fascist past to hold the office of prime minister. But I don't think this is the first far-right government that the country's seen, really. I mean, it's been in the making since the early to mid-1990s. Silvio Berlusconi led four mm. uh, coalitions between 1994 and 2011, which were euphemistically termed centre-right, but they all contained um, Giorgio mm. Maloney's predecessor party, the National Alliance which itself had emerged from a neo-fascist tradition. And then it also contained the Lega Nord, which is a predecessor to um, Matteo mm. Salvini's Lega. So the normalization of these far-right ideas has been underway in Italy for some time now. And owes a lot to the mainstreaming of um, far-right politics as conservative or, or center-right. In terms of a return of fascism, um, well, we may not see kind of jackbooted fascists on the streets. We mm. might not see um, kind of banning of political opposition as happened during the 1920s and 1930s. I, I still think we should be concerned because much of the ideology and discourse that we've seen recently in the election campaign in Italy has roots in Italy's fascist past. And I'm talking here about kind of dog whistle tropes such as God, fatherland and family, which was banded about by Maloney um, and was a phrase often used by Mussolini. And it, it points towards a very specific God, a Catholic God, an exclusionary vision of Italy as a fatherland which needs to be protected. And, of course, in terms of family, it, it speaks to a kind of heteronormative image of the family, which discriminates against LGBTQ communities as well. Um, but I would say I'd be kind of hesitant here to say that Italy is alone. I mean, Italy is not alone here. We're, we're witnessing a mainstream of far-right ideology discourse in the UK and mm-hmm. many other countries in Europe and, and the USA as well. Um, Dr. Newth, isn't the, when, it, when we talk of far-right extremism in any form, but religion has always been very prominent in, in far-right ideology. I mean, one looks at Ku Klux Klan, they all quote the Bible. Yeah. Um, you know, in fact, all, forget about the Christianity perspective, irrespective of which faith, Islam has got, um, you know, the, the, the Al-Qaeda who quote and, and mm-hmm. the Taliban who quote, uh, you know, who misquote, um, uh, you know, holy, the Holy Quran. And we have in Hinduism, we have the, uh, you know, we have the Hindutva party who, who you know, who are the far extremists. We have, you know, all religions across the world when it comes to extremism. Mm-hmm. They've always used religion as a tool to attract mm. membership. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with you there. And I, I think it's kind of a, a weaponization of, of religion to, to exclude yep. more than and to, as, as much as to include as well in terms of kind of creating in-groups and out-groups. But, and that's oh, sorry, gone. Sorry, I would just wanted to ask, you, you mentioned Liga Nord. I mean, Silvini is, has, mm. Silvini is actually more far right than, than Maloney. Maloney seems a little bit more willing to what well, she needs to work with Europe because Italy needs the 170 billion um, of, yeah. of the fund. So she's willing to kind of compromise. 
But do you think Maloney is, is likely to, to, to survive, considering the, the friendship between Berlusconi and Putin that's come to light in recent days? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that she's more uh, that that Salvini is more far right than Maloney. I think they're probably kind of operating on a similar kind of wavelength in terms of their ideology. I just think Maloney's probably more pragmatic yeah. and understands that she needs to, you know, tone down the rhetoric when it comes to the European Union in terms of whether the, the coalition can survive. Um, that's a really good question, and I think one of the key fault lines is really the relationship with Russia and yes. and Ukraine, and as has become clear over the past few days really you know like Berlusconi is is not going to hold back when it comes to um when it comes to Putin and his relationship there so it'll be an interesting one I I, I think yeah the the what that will be one of the key fault lines really. just, just to for, for my sake would mm. Giorgio Meloni would 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 she have won had this the the Demo- central democrats and left kept the coalition that's a really a really good point um I mean, the, the, the really interesting point there is that the turnout for people voting against the centre-right was actually higher. Yes. So the, 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 the parties that weren't in the centre-right bloc combined received around 49% of the vote, and mm. those in the centre-right bloc received about 43 44%. So if there had managed to be some sort of coalition, um, then, yeah, possibly she might not have won. And I think that's, that's a big problem, really, for the left is there are huge divisions. Of course, then there are issues of, you know, who would have led that block? What policies would they have been able to agree on? Um, but there are a couple of things here. I mean, first of all, is, is the division on the left hmm. um, and the fact that they don't have any clear vision to yes. combat what the far right is offering. But also, you know, this was one of the lowest turnouts in Italian political history, just around 63.9%. Hmm. And if you compare that to um, previous elections, I think 2018 was 72%. And then if we go back to 2008, it was over 80%. So Italy is a country which has historically very high levels of turnout. And so this time around, none of the parties really managed to mobilize voters. So I think we see quite a high level of frustration and disillusionment. And so, yeah, I mean, any any kind of spinning of this result as the will of the people should really be taken as a, with, with a pinch of salt, I would say. Now, I'll come back to the will of the people, but you, it says mm. here you're studying populism and far-right research. Would you yeah. say, I mean, and the question of, of populism across Europe, the, the populist and the far-right parties across Europe are not united, are they? Because they all have different aims, yeah, of course. I mean, and, and I think, you know, a key a key issue here is not necessarily populism, but, but nationalism and exactly. national interests. And, and so, of course, they have very different aims because they're all looking out for um, or they claim to be looking out for national interests and and, and their, their, their nations, their nation states within Europe. So, yeah, they're going to come to blows. So this idea of a kind of we often use the term of like a European far right. And, you know, to a certain extent that exists in terms of certain parliamentary groups within the European Parliament. But, um, yeah, they're all going to be fighting for their, their, their kind of own so-called kind of sovereignty, uh, sovereign interests. And that's, that's going to make it difficult to form any kind of European bloc, I guess. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think Russia has kind of made it even uh, more worse because, like, Viktor Orban mm. is, is pro-Putin. Poland is anti um, in yeah. Maloney's government, Maloney is pro, well, she's yeah. more Poland-ish, whereas Silvini and, and Berlusconi are, are pure, um, you know, they're friends of Putin. So yeah. it's yeah. like, 
um, you know, there's a there's a lot of um, um, there's no unity. There's no clear message. So my question is, are we kind of overstating the populism and the rise of the extreme right, or is it geographical and locational? And because of because of movement of people around the world, it, it, its ugly head is ri- is raising. But like in Germany, it will eventually go down. I mean, again, I think we we probably need to take it on a case by case basis. But I think one thing that we we need to look at really in in this country, but also in Italy as well, is is how these ideas become normalised and how um, how they can be countered. Essentially, you know, that's that's one of the big problems. Is that you know, if we think about kind of the Overton window and you know how certain ideas become acceptable over time or certain ideas become perceived common sense over time. Um, then that has meant that over the years, certain ideas which would have seemed extreme in the past now seem mainstream, and that's that's due to kind of two. Well, that's kind of due to a, a dual process of far right parties polishing their image and their discourse, whilst not really changing their ideology, and at the same time, the mainstream kind of engaging and making compromises with many of these ideas and adopting many of these ideas. As well, so I think that's that's really the question that we need to be ask, asking. Really, is not whether we're going to see kind of the the far right raise its its head in the same way as it did in the 1920s and 1930s, because it, it has changed. It's learned to adapt, hmm. and it's learned to kind of cohabit with the mainstream. And the mainstream has been kind of main, mainstream actors such as mainstream parties and the mainstream media or the establishment media, I should say, have been kind of more than willing to to share some of these ideas and, and push some of these ideas as well as as kind of normalised ideas. So, yeah, I, I think those, that's kind of the main, main question that we need to focus on. Um, looking at economics, um, mm. Draghi was the was the kind of the rock that could have taken yeah. um, Italy out of problem. Um, is there any chance that, I mean, because Maloney will need someone who can, who can, who can kind of communicate with EU... Um, do you mm. think? Do you think Draghi? Because it's not Maloney. I think will would Draghi kind of uh, be willing to work with Maloney? I think we'll see. I think we'll probably see quite a lot of continuity in many ways. I mean, like with with Draghi, I mean his policies were were fairly kind of austerity driven in many ways, yes. and kind of benefited many those kind of at the. Uh, not at the sharp end of kind of tax cuts, I guess. Like but many, many kind of people on the higher end tax cuts benefited and benefited under Draghi. So he was never going to pull the poorest out of poverty. And no. I think what we'll see with Maloney is is many ways kind of continuity with that, but perhaps kind of more extreme measures such as abolishing um, the universal basic income or the citizen wage, as it's known, which is really kind of quite a low poverty subsidy that provides that families with an average of around 567 euros a month but that's really resented by business owners mm, uh, it is, who yeah. argue that it discourages people from working so she she's planning to get rid of that and one of the key kind of center-right coalition policies is a flat tax of 23 percent at every income level so whether you know whether you're earning um, 50,000 a year, 20,000 a year. So whether or not this final version is, is likely to be more limited, there, you know, many of these policies will actually further exacerbate inequalities, I think, in what is already becoming one of the most unequal countries in the EU. So, you know, I think this is why many kind of conservative elites turn a blind eye to Maloney's 
uh, kind of more reactionary policies because she's in many ways kind of a, a guarantee for the status quo, I would say. But I mean, one of the big dangers for Italy now is that if we look at what's happened in the UK since the, the mini budget, um, many of Maloney's policies are actually quite similar yeah. to that, really. She's, she's kind of hoping to kind of shock the Italian uh, economy into life, I guess, by um, cutting taxes and, um, and other similar uh, policies, as was uh, suggested by Kwarteng and, and Trust, Trust and Kwarteng. Well, well so, the, the difference being that 200, million, uh, 200 billion coming from EU, which the UK yeah, just yeah, didn't have. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, exactly. I mean, that's, I think that's her hope, is that she can somehow renegotiate that and, and offset some of the, 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 the shock to the, the market, market that her policies will, will cause. One final question, Dr. Neuth. Hmm. Well, Italy's had left, it's had centre governments, and now it's experiencing right-wing governments. Yeah, Isn't Italy's main problem that the infrastructure or the equivalent of the civil service of Italy is left? Um, I, don't, I don't know about that. I mean, there's been various different discourses about, uh, like around the, the, the civil service, really. I mean, in the past, it was said that they were dominated by Southerners. Um, now there's a discourse saying that, you know, perhaps they're too left-wing. I mean, we, we need to remember that Italy is a republic founded on anti-fascist principles, I mean, on the values of the anti-fascist resistance. So the constitution itself mm-hmm. is, is anti-fascist. Um, so this is kind of quite a, a big moment for Italy, a dangerous moment, I would say, in terms of its foundations, really, because we have, you know, fascists in, in, in institutions now um, serving an anti-fascist constitution. As for the civil service itself, I mean, as in any country, I don't think you can ever have a completely apolitical civil service. People are always going to have ideological views. Um, and whether or not, you know, that stymies um, Maloney's program, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't see that as a huge issue. I think it's more to do with the, you know, the, the swing to the right that we've seen is more to do with the combination of abstention and the normalization of far-right ideas in public discourse. The, the only reason I, I mention that is because if one was to look at Italy as a standalone country in Europe, mm. they, have a, they have a fantastic car industry, they have a fantastic tourism right. industry, yeah. they yeah, have yeah. a fantastic um, clothing industry, fashion industry, you name it, mm. they have the industry. In fact, if the country was run properly, it would outsmart Germany by a mile yet, yeah. yet. Um, it it's on its it's always on its knees, and and it, it, hence the thought comes to mind that so many different parties have come and gone unsuccessfully, but yet the only it seems to be the infrastructure of how um, um, you know the, the the I mean maybe I shouldn't call it left, but it seems that way that the, the system um, um, needs to change in the way um, uh, the governments are run. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I think we ha- we need to remember that also, you know, the past decade has been dominated by austerity and, and the COVID-19 crisis as well. So, I mean, that's a, this has really led to a huge drop in, in GDP, um, not only in Italy, but also across the West as well. Um, I'm not sure, I mean, that, like, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that Maloney's policies are not what the country needs, really. I mean, it's, it, it, Italy does have some, some incredible industries, but also many of these industries have been in decline since the early 90s and i think one of the biggest problems has been a kind of failure to transition in many ways to to new industries and kind of digital industries as well so there's there's kind of yeah there's there's an issue of of kind of transition in terms of 
um, in terms of the economy and in terms of what jobs should be created and how jobs can be created as well. Wonderful. Dr. Newt, if I can take you back to uh, one point that you made earlier, um, mm-hmm. actually a few times in the interview about normalization of these far-right views generally yes. yeah. Uh, yeah. in many societies. How yeah. worried do you think we should be about that trend from um, a cross-civilizational uh, point of view? A cross-civilizational uh, point of view. Um, yeah, from from the point. I mean, uh, uh, look at France, for example. You know, uh, they've hmm. banned hijab. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms, of, so, so, you know, the the, oh, the whole talk yeah. about building bridges and living together. Where, where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult question. It's a very worrying question, really. I think I think it is. I think we should be concerned about it, and I think. For example, I mean, if we look at the UK and um, some of the discourse that is used by um, our former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, perhaps soon to be again Prime Minister Boris Johnson, <laughs> regarding regarding kind God of, forbid. regarding <laughs> yeah, well, exactly regarding the burqa and you know his letterbox comments and and yeah. these are phrases that should not be part of political discourse, mainstream exactly. political discourse, and yet and yet they are because. You know, they they then become normalised in the in the media. So I think it 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 kind of paints quite a, a doom laden picture in in many ways. But again, this is the job of the left, I think, really to combat these ideas. And it's a job of people with, you know, whether or not you consider yourself on the left, those those who kind of hold more egalitarian views towards society and towards civilization and, and living together and building bridges. As you said, I mean that's that's where it comes down to kind of calling out that kind of behaviour for what it is, which is um, far right behaviour and, and racist behaviour. So, yeah, um, I think there is, you know, there, where do we go from here? I think, I mean, that, that's a huge question. <laughs> um, but there, there, there are there are things that you know mainstream actors can do, and those in responsibilities uh, with responsibility of power can do in the media and in politics to call out um, far right behaviour for what it is. Dr. Jordan Ruth, uh, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Lecturer in All politics right, and you. international relations at the University of Bath with us in the line. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Have a great weekend. Thank ahead. you. Peace be on you, sir. Okay. Well, what a fantastic interview describing the situations and a whistle tour about the far right populism. And I thought that was a very interesting conversation by our presenters and our guest speaker, Dr. George Newth, who's a lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Bath. Well, another topic that we covered in October that was very interesting and it uh, did generate quite a lot of interest was regret and in relation to regret, remorse and guilt and understanding the difference between them because regret is so closely associated with remorse and guilt and when remorse or guilt is felt, someone becomes a moral type of of regret and it's very interesting that when we uh, listen to or understand uh, Sulman Akhtar who is a psychiatrist and a professor at Thompson Jefferson University in Philadelphia he explained that it is really easy to confuse guilt and remorse and and he gave a really good example that if we were driving in a car at 2am and we drove through a red light not obviously saying that we should do that at all but we're going to have a little bit of pang of guilt even if no one else is watching us and that's guilt i mean it's a distinct from another feeling of remorse in which 
We also feel bad, but the bad feeling has to do with hurting someone that you care about. And people unfortunately use the word guilt for both. And sometimes the two can overlap, but actually they're very separate. And I just wanted to uh, explain that the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya movement, His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Ahmed, and may Allah be pleased with him. He said that regret was the first of seven steps to attaining the forgiveness of God and that a man inculcates regret for his past sins and that he remembers his past sins and brings them before his memory and regretting them so immensely um, he has to leave and uh, him akin to like sweating profusely so he really feels it so there you can really have a, a big understanding as to how that actually uh, portrays in, in that wonderful kind of example. But what I wanted to also add is that the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement of Islam, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, may peace be upon him, he also explained the purpose of remorse is like when a thief commits theft or a murder is commits then God puts it in his heart that at the same time that he has done ill and not good, but he pays no attention for it and the, and the light of his heart and his reasons are weak and are overcome by his animal faculties and his ego is insistent. The turmoil and the ego of such people cannot be reduced for that which God has imposed cannot be removed by anyone else, yet God has provided a remedy. And what is that remedy? It is repentance, seeking forgiveness and remorse, and feeling bad about hurting someone is an important first step in improving yourself. So there's we, we covered that subject um, in, in detail, but what I would like to do is play another clip with one of our guests, which we spoke with, Litza Williams, who was the co-founder of What's Your Grief? And here's, a, here's the interview that we had then. We have uh, with us uh, Litza Williams, uh, who is a co-founder of What's Your Grief um, organization. Um, Litza, good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to The Drive Time Show. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining. Um, in your website on grief, um, what's your grief? Uh, you explain the difference between regret and, and guilt. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about it, but could you explain what the difference is and how do you kind of, you know, distinguish between what is a regret and what has become a guilt or something that, I guess, uh, you know, stays with you for a bit longer? Sure, sure. I think with, obviously, as a grief therapist, uh, a lot of people who we work with and support are struggling with both guilt and regret. And one of the challenges we see is that sometimes people conflate the two emotions. They sort of think, if I feel regret, I must be guilty for something. And one of the things that we try to help people to tease out is to realize that we feel regret any time that we look back on an action and we, we wish we had done something differently. But we can regret things where at the time we didn't necessarily have any way to predict the outcome. You know, we, anticip we, we anticipated that after a certain decision, things would feel different or would look different or would be different. And with guilt, you know, oftentimes there is this added layer where with guilt, 
we maybe knew that we were doing something that was potentially wrong or problematic at the time. We, we did anticipate it a little bit. We feel like maybe it speaks more to our intention at the time. And so sometimes it can be helpful to just spend a little time for people between that difference between guilt and regret. You know, is this just something that now that I know the outcome, I wish that it had, uh, I had done something differently or is it something where kind of even in advance, I had some indication that maybe this this would happen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we associate grief and regret and guilt and all of these kinds of feelings with family deaths very commonly. Um, but we don't have that sort of emotion um, towards people that are still alive. Um in what sense would you say that these emotions can be felt for the people who may still be around us? Oh, I, I think it's incredibly common. So, you know, you talked about that connection, that regret over not reaching out to someone or those lost connections with people or so many other things. You know, grief is really just our normal, natural response to loss. And so oftentimes we think of loss as losses through death. But we lose connections with people who are living in so many circumstances. We lose touch with people or we have a conflict or a fight and then we don't reach out with an olive branch to try to mend that relationship. And so we can certainly feel these deep regrets uh, about these lost connections with people who are still living and, and feel like we wish we had handled a situation differently or that we had repaired a relationship after it had, uh, you know, after a strain within it. Hmm. So how important is it to kind of acknowledge uh, regrets um, in in helping people to deal with their grief? Uh, Because I I imagine you have to kind of go to the the root problem or what's kind of sticking with them to try to sort out how they move on. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's that's one of the things that we really try to help people to consider um, what they regret, what is the guilt, you know, what are the things that they're feeling, and then even thinking about what that has done to shape them. Many times people are able to look at their regrets or their guilt and identify the ways that though they may have caused harm to another person or maybe it created a situation that they wish they could take back that they ultimately sometimes have grown from that experience maybe they're now more caring and empathetic towards other people you know acknowledging those regrets so that we can acknowledge um, both the ways that we need to seek forgiveness seek self-forgiveness but also acknowledge our own growth is all incredibly important to the grieving process. And um, in, in, in what way can regret about things said or done to a person who has since died affect the self-esteem of the grieving person? Uh, I, I think this is a really good question because oftentimes we feel like we can't, uh, if we can't seek forgiveness for, from someone, which when they've died, of course, we, we can't get their direct forgiveness we feel like we'll never be able to resolve these feelings of guilt and regret. And in some sense, oftentimes we will carry that guilt and regret with us, but it can be incredibly important to remember that just because we have done something wrong or made a a misstep or a, a mistake, that that doesn't reflect on 
who we are as a, as a person necessarily. Many times in our relationship with someone who's died, there were a million wonderful moments of love and care and concern. And yet the thing that we focus on or remember is that one thing we really regret saying in anger, you know, before they died or that we didn't visit at the very end of their life or, you know, specific things that we regret. And so keeping that whole perspective in mind and being able to remember that our, we shouldn't let those regrets define who we are or the nature of the entire relationship. We need to see that whole thing. And that we also need to acknowledge that sometimes those regrets did help us to change and to grow. And we may feel incredibly bad about who we were at the time and why we made a certain decision at the time. But that part of rebuilding our self-esteem and our self-worth is knowing that we can grow from those things and knowing that in memory of our loved one, we can say, you know what, well, I deeply regret that I didn't call my mom more, you know, at the end of her life. And I can say that I now make more of an effort to call all of my family, you know, in memory of her, in honor of the person that I want to be because of that guilt and regret. And that can help us to rebuild some of our self-esteem. Okay. No, I think that's a very good point. I think a lot of people might have or be going through the same kind of scenarios, especially when some of their parents or maybe some of their loved ones uh, passed away and they, you know, had something left that they they wanted to, you know, revisit. Um, I'm, I'm told that in your new book, uh, What's Your Grief? You have suggested um, lists um, are a good way to, to manage your grief, as in putting it down on paper. Is, is that right? I mean, what do you mean by that? I, I know. I think people hear this sometimes and they think kind of what the lists have to do with grief. Um, yeah. But oftentimes what we what we know is that grief feels so overwhelming and unmanageable, especially when you start to layer in the emotions of guilt and anger and blame and overwhelm and isolation, depression. I mean, there's so much that can come in with with grief. And one of the things that we really encourage people to do in our work, but in this book, is to really sort of understand that grief is a lifelong process after we've lost a loved one it evolves it changes but sometimes the best thing we can do is slowly start to take step-by-step -step action on kind of how to both understand it and how to understand what our life will be like after our loved one has died so you know part of this idea of even thinking about guilt and regret you know is sometimes thinking about what are the things I'm feeling guilt and regret about? How do I really not just feel the overwhelm of those emotions, but list that out for myself and think about in a step-by-step -step way, how will I begin to process this? How will I begin to maybe make amends for the things I want to make amends for or seek mm. self-forgiveness? And then what does that process look like? And how do I slowly start to not get overwhelmed by all of those emotions but systematically think about how can I, over the days, weeks, months, years, and even decades to come, you know, integrate this loss into who I am, um, integrate my memories of my loved one. You know, what will I? What are the lists of the many things about them that they taught me, their values, the things that I want to keep as part of me as I go forward? And sometimes when we're feeling so overwhelmed and disorganized, you know, uh, lists can be a, a nice approach to help it feel more manageable as we move forward.
Mm. And again, just lastly there, because a lot of people have probably issues with getting over things or dealing with their regrets. Maybe they don't have anyone supportive to talk to. Maybe they, they, they can't find a way to deal with their conscious. Um, and maybe if that builds up for many, many years, they, they might even have diff- bigger difficulty, you know, uh, revisiting issues and trying to sort them out. So do you think some kind of regular meditation or time to reflect and think about one's action could, could perhaps help in this situation? Absolutely. And I think we encourage people to, to spend that time and space to tend to these emotions because as you described, you know, they don't just, they don't just go away. We, we would love to believe that the idea that time heals all wounds was accurate, but if we don't tend to those wounds, if we don't spend time with it, we know that they will sometimes come up in other ways later or just continue to follow us. So spending time with the emotions, writing, meditating, but also thinking about it in a a forward motion because the one thing we want to be careful of is we don't want people to have that that meditative space or that time and that journaling to turn into rumination, right? We don't want people to just put a woulda, shoulda and go over what could have been at the time over and over, but instead use that time to be able to say, I, I feel this guilt, I feel this regret, but how do I want to let it shape me as I move forward? What maybe are things that my family member, if they were still here, what would they have told me? How would they guide me in coping with these things that I'm feeling right now? Um, To be able to allow ourselves to take the space to tend to the emotions, but then also think about how we want it to shape us in positive movement forward. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Alitza, for joining us uh, from uh, from the organization What's Your Grief. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Ben, again, a fantastic interview from our fellow presenters and Alitza William, co-founder of What Is Your Grief. So I thought, I'm sure you found that very interesting and uh, very informative and very insightful in some parts as well. And and one of the things uh, also quite insightful is lying. That was uh, another subject that we kind of picked out um, in October. And out of the many ills in the modern society today, lying is quite prevalent. And we see that even if it's a white lie or a, a sweet lie or, or, or you didn't really mean it, uh, it is because becoming uh, quite the norm and uh, it, it is worrying as uh, as the society begins to open its doors to falsehood and then to many social ills such as deception false testimonies etc etc and it can quickly destroy the peace and happiness of families and cause great damage to moral conditions of a society and that is what we do not want to happen and we're seeing it happen all over the place and Islam has been very clear in its stance on falsehood. Allah the Almighty states in the Holy Quran shun false speech and surely Allah guides not him who is an ungrateful liar. And also in in the show, uh, we discussed many implications of lying, and especially from an Islamic perspective, but also through the lens of the social implications. And then they also discussed how lying is is 
in some cases, people feel that it's harmless and acceptable, which Islam is very clearly it doesn't. There was um, an example of someone that uh, made this kind of false claim. And to demonstrate how lying has kind of become uh, widespread, we, we spoke about the implications of the sheer amount of people that can be affected. And we told a story of Sherry Papini in California, a woman who admitted to faking her kidnapping. According to the recent article published in The Guardian, her case gained national attention when she went missing for weeks. And this was back in 2016, but was found staying with an ex-boyfriend. And she eventually reappeared with the elaborate story of being abducted by two Hispanic women uh, in an SUV car and chained to a pole for three weeks, beaten and branded before being released by the side of a highway. And as it was mentioned in the article that was published in The Guardian, probation officers and Papini's attorney had recommended a month in custody and seven months of supervised home detention. But a senior U.S. District Judge, William Shubb, said that she had opted for an 18-month sentence in order to deter others. And the judge emphasised that the seriousness of the offence, her fabrications, impacted the law enforcement officers who spent over 150,000 US dollars in search for her and the community that believed her for four years, those who lived in fear because of the, for, of her fake story and the Latino community that was falsely viewed with suspicion to the point that some Latinians stopped walking in groups of two and stopped driving SUVs. And along with the severe implications of the hoax brought forward, one of the major social harms that was felt by the real victim of such victims is that now they will be taken seriously by the law enforcement. So there was a, a reason, and ahead of her sentencing, Sherry Papini admitted her mistakes and said, I am guilty, Your Honour. I am guilty of lying. I am guilty of dishonour. What is done cannot be undone. It cannot be erased. So that was someone who understood and realised the severity of her mistakes. And I wanted to play a video, sorry, play an audio clip of an interview that uh, we've done. But I wanted to mention this thing of His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, who stated in his Friday sermon that was delivered on the 2nd of November 2018. And he said that this is not the hallmark of a believer. One should not come under the impression that even a small inaccurate statement are not lies. They most certainly are lies and take one far away from Tawheed, which is known as the unity of God. So it's really important that we kind of consider this and make it instinctive in our in our own actions every day. What we say is not to lie. But I wanted to play back this interview that we had with Dale Atkins, a licensed psychologist with more than 40 years of experience as a relationship expert. So here, have, have a listen to this. We have Dale Atkins. Um, who uh, is uh, she is a licensed psychologist with more than 40 years of experience as a relationship expert focusing on kindness managing stress and balance in one's life assalamu alaikum may peace and blessings of god be upon you and welcome to the drive time show 
Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation, a, a very important conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I mean, in the context of, of, of human behavior, uh, what is psychological reason for actually lying? You know, I hear there's so many reasons. Sometimes people are innocently trying to avoid hurting someone's feelings that they care about. Sometimes they are trying to protect someone else from a, from a threat. Um, people lie because of feelings of guilt or feelings of shame. They want to avoid conflict. They don't want to experience negative emotions or negative interaction that might come up if they actually told the truth. Sometimes people act out of just impulse. Um, for many people, they, they make they make up stories and they lie because it feel, they feel that it makes them look better or that their reputation will be enhanced. Um, sometimes people lie because they don't want to be punished or they don't mm. want to be confronted. Mm. And, um, you know, there are so many reasons. And many people just lie in their everyday life and, you know, they're not aware of the effects. And sometimes the effects can be positive, but... If you're living with someone who's lying and you are concerned, trust within that relationship, whether mm. it's a familial relationship or a friendship or a work relationship, is slowly undermined. Mm. Definitely. And so what are possible factors that, that motivate people to you know, keep progressing further in those lives? It's such a great question. Uh, sometimes people feel that if they keep lying, um, they're getting closer to their goal, that they're motivated because things are working out in the way that they want them to work out, and they start to believe their lies. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they, pardon me one second, <laughs> I'm sorry. No that's, that's not a problem. Take your time. Thank you. They start to believe their lies, and... Sometimes people then get confused because they don't know where the truth is. And often people who lie repeatedly have a desire to be in control. And if a truth comes out that they don't agree with, then they feel that they've lost control. And I think what's important to understand is that once we begin to lie, often there is no way out because the lie just grows or people then expect us to be lying and then they can't really uh, trust us mm -hmm. and lying can be very uh, destructive to a person both the liar and to the person who's being lied to because it can deplete our energy and it negatively affects our sense of who we are and also what I think a lot of people don't know which is an important element in my view to your question, is when we are being dishonest, our brain actually goes into a state of heightened alert. It increases our stress with the magnitude of the lie. And people can have symptoms of anxiety because their brain is so activated. And it's something that many people don't know. It's like, you know, I like to say an honest brain is a relaxed brain and a dishonest brain is often frenetic because we're constantly trying to live within that lie. Um, right. So I think that, you know, 
why? to the motivation to stay in, in that lie and believing that lie? Yes, people can be highly motivated, again, if they are, if, if the outcome is what they want. Mm-hmm. So if they've changed someone's perception of them because the perception that they think of themselves isn't good enough or isn't um, noble enough, then they want people to keep believing, so they keep lying. And what's interesting is for many people, it makes it more difficult the more they're lying. And again, it undermines trust in relationships. Mm, absolutely. And so how, how can lying negatively affect a person in their everyday dealings with society? It's a great question. I again, I really appreciate your questions. It can, it can get in the way of their dealings with people they love, hmm. because again, it can it can actually destroy a relationship. Because all of the relationships that mean something to us are built on mutual trust, whether it's a romantic relationship or work relationship. And lying underwrites, undermines, and erodes that trust, and it hurts everybody involved, whether it's keeping secrets or telling a small lie, it can destroy one of the fundamental pillars of a healthy relationship, and that really is trust. And it's damaging because it has consequences. When someone has lied to you, there's usually an area of your heart that closes or your mind that becomes suspicious. And whether that person doesn't lie ever again you probably would be a little suspicious or you wonder Mm. whether they're telling you the truth. Mm. And when it's in a work relationship, if a manager um, finds that someone is lying, it's very often difficult for them to give them another chance, Mm. to give that person another chance. Now, we haven't talked about pathological lying because, or people who are are significantly um, having stresses within their mental health, mm. people who have what we would call narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder, mm. and because then they're lying to be manipulative or outright deceitful, and, and those are other kinds of situations. But in most people's lives, they're not really interacting with people who are pathological liars, and if they are, then they really have to take steps to protect themselves and to be much more careful about what the people are saying to them and the, and the situations they get into with people who are lying in that way. Right, and um, so is this something that people can seek psychological help for? Yes, people can seek psychological help for it. Although in my experience, people generally are not going into therapy because they're lying. They generally go into therapy because of another reason, and then within a short period of time, you can try and discover that, wait a minute, are you telling me the truth or are you telling a lie? And it can be even a a simple lie, like, oh, I'm so sorry I was late, but the subway was delayed. Well, the subway wasn't delayed. Mm. I actually left work late, and that's why I'm late. So Mm. to be able to Mm. to tell the truth in everyday situations where you take responsibility, Mm. then you can try to help someone uncover why is it difficult for you to take responsibility? Why are you not enough? Mm. 
why must you enhance who you are in order to make yourself appealing mm-hmm. in a situation? So I think that the act of uncovering one's lies, again, is not necessarily why when somebody goes into therapy, but within short order, it's clear that lying is a way that this person uh, relies on to get through their life. Thank you. I mean, uh, it was a pleasure to have you on. So much to learn, and um, it, won't, it won't be the last time, I assure you. So thank you so much for joining <laughs> us and, 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 and giving us your expert advice. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. May you be well. Thank, thank you. you. Thank Fantastic. There you go. Another one. Uh, great interviews. Well done, guys. Uh, it was awesome to be able to listen to the interview with Dale Atkins, who's a licensed psychologist with, you can see in here, obviously with more than 40 years of experience as a relationship expert. So we're going to go into the second hour and talk again uh, a couple of other topics that we spoke about, and that was restorative justice and Halloween. And I did mention the incident that happened in Seoul because of the celebrations of Halloween and the effects of it. So just uh, stay with us. And before you go, here is the five o'clock news. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back and thank you for staying with us. Today is the 28th of December and we have been covering the month of October 2022 and it's not only myself but all of our fellow presenters on the drive time show have been picking a month and discussing what and how the drive time show covered that month and all the great stories that were covered and in the first hour there were very many political um stories that hit the headlines and had a massive impact on us and there were some international headlines as well that also uh, took effect which we will probably be discussing and talking about and sharing some interviews about that which one was restorative justice and Halloween have we taken it too far that was the kind of discussion that we had um, in October and we spoke with a number of guests to talk about that but first of all I want to talk a little bit about a subject that we did talk about and that was restorative justice and a very interesting concept uh, about restorative justice but I wanted to state a, a verse from the Holy Quran on chapter 2 verse 188 and it states that these are the limits set by Allah so approach them not thus does Allah make his commandments clear to men so that they may become secure against evil. And this was in relation to uh, justice and restorative justice and what it means, etc. But actually, the the actual specific subject it may not be very clear as to how people would understand it, but it was a concept that was discussed um, and about restorative justice. And actually, it meant that victims can talk to offenders and encourage them to take their responsibilities and make amends. And this is not only empowers the victim himself, but also aims to help 
them in getting back to their lives and 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 that's what we spoke about on that day as well and and this was for both parties to come to some sort of uh, justice as well so so basically what what is the restorative justice and Allah the almighty instructs us to stay away from evils is it it says in the Holy Quran, observe prayer and enjoin good and forbid evil and endure patiently whatever may befall thee. Surely this is of matters which require firm resolve. And that is chapter 31, verse 18. Um, but what we want to do is understand a little bit more about this subject and how it works and and what it is that has been suggested in this uh in this topic and we'll kind of talk about that but it did it is talking about like five r's these are kind of like the the relationship the respect the responsibility and the repair um, as to how conflicts can be resolved and how they are observed as well and then the reintegration um, that encourages the collaboration of communities and the people who cause the harm rather than turning towards a, a cohesion and iso isolation and just before i want to play a audio clip for you i wanted to also mention another verse in holy quran chapter 39 verse 54 where it says, Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran, say, O my servants who have committed excess against their own souls, despair not of the mercy of Allah. Surely Allah forgives all sins. Verily, he is the most forgiving and most merciful. And I wanted to uh, play uh, an audio clip from Theo Garvalides. He's a PhD and is is a legal philosopher and the founder of the RJ for All. And uh, so, what I'd like to play that audio clip, and then we'll have a discussion after that. Thank you. With us, uh, Professor Theo Gavrilides, who is a PhD and is a legal uh, philosopher and founder of RJ for All. Peace be upon you. Good afternoon, and welcome to the show, Theo. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for, for joining us this afternoon. Now, what is um, restorative justice for all and how does it work? Yeah, that's the name of the organization I set up. It's a community organization um, that I, I created hmm. some time ago um, when I felt that there is a power imbalance in our society, whether it's a local community or the international community. Um, and I was um, looking at different practices, but also values that would help us rebalance the power abuse that we're experiencing. Uh, and by the way, it's London Poverty Challenge Week uh, this week. Um, mm. So your conversations are very uh, timely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and, and um, one of the methodologies for abusing, for addressing the abuse of power is, is restorative justice. So I created the organization and it's, that's exactly what it says on the team, restorative justice for offering restorative justice as a vehicle, um, as, a, as a methodology and as a practice to address power abuse. Um, now, I've been listening to your, to your conversations and obviously uh, you have focused on the use of restorative justice for, um, for crime. So something that has happened mm. and restoring the incident and bringing the victim and the offender 
Now, restorative justice for um, our organisation does that too, but the biggest work that we do is prevention. Um, And restorative justice is used in its majority in the preventative side of things. So in schools, in educational settings, in youth settings, with young people, uh, but also to raise awareness about the values on which it's based. Um, And you probably, well, you mentioned the Quran and certain sections of the Quran where actually restorative justice is mentioned. Um, I've got... um, 49, paragraph 9 in front of me, which says, if two functions among the believers should fight, then make settlement, suluk, between the two. Um, and there's several concepts within the Quran and Islam that um, can form, I would say, the foundations for the restorative justice practices um, and the values are those that you mentioned in your mm. in your discussions, including forgiveness, uh, one of the most important um, values, um, respect, equality, dignity, and the one that I keep saying is power sharing. Absolutely, absolutely, um, Professor Professor uh, Theo. Um, other than other than criminal offences, what what other problems or you know issues can actually be resolved by by this form of justice? Yeah, so as I said, uh, for us, it's 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 not the the biggest issue is not just dealing with the crime, which, as we know, the current criminal justice system is failing. If we look at the recidivism rates for other offenders, seventy five percent would end up going back doing the same thing mm. uh, in prison, mm. and the same the statistics for young people are even worse. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And then you mentioned the statistics. Um, in terms of the the victim satisfaction and the benefits in terms of recidivism for offenders for for restorative justice, um, but for us it's, it's wider than that. And it, it, as I said, it is about rebalancing power and addressing power abuse. Now, how do you go about doing that with restorative justice? Well, to do restorative justice, and we do it every day. Um, I do it every day with my son. Uh, just to give you an example, if, if, if you know, if we all wear hats, you know, we're, we're parents, we are employers, we are partners, and we have power. Um, and it's how we use that power. Uh, and you can say to your to your children, you know, you left your bedroom untidy, you have to go back and do it. And if you don't do it, you're going to be punished, or you're not going to get dessert, or you're not going to get this. Mm. Um, and that's the, 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 the philosophy of the criminal justice system. This is what we're used to. We want to punish to get something, mm. to, to rectify something or to achieve something. We use our hats and as a vehicle to achieve that. Whereas in restorative justice, you would sit down and say, shall we just talk about the problem here? This is what I think mm. should be done because it's better this way because of hygienic reasons, it's more tidy, you will find your clothes easier, you won't lose time. Um, explain the reasons why you think your position is correct and then allow the other person without saying, oh, do you know what, I, I'm got, I've got had and I've done your dad or I'm your employer and you've got to say certain things to me in a certain way. No, you remove that had and you allow them to be themselves and then answer back and say, well, actually, it's my bedroom or my bedroom and I get your point about you know being tidy and maybe I would tidy up but not every day I would do it so you negotiate a solution mm. and with that you remove the power that we have 
and is abused and leads to bad outcomes. And in this methodology, you allow a consensual resolution. And I'll just use a very simple example here that the the two parties agree and has more potential of succeeding. Um, magnifying that in the society where, you know, the communities, where is the Muslim community, you know, any community that is, is, is experiencing the abuse of power by those in power. Um, if those communities or if those individuals can negotiate solutions about different issues, you can understand that the solutions will be far better than the solutions that have been imposed. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but this is, it is a hard, hard thing to do. And all parties need to be willing to do that because the hardest thing to do, um, and I just published a book called Race, Power and Restorative Justice, is to be able to share power. Mm. It's to be able to say, yes, I have the power and I'm willing to share that power. And that's not an easy thing to do. Mm. So all the fantastic things that you said about restorative justice are great. But I have to point out, is not easy. Mm, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, we can imagine as well. I mean, just before we we brought you on as well, we we mentioned, of course, there are many many positives, but there are some disadvantages uh, as well, which need to be highlighted as well before people actually um, resort to this sort of uh, sort of justice method. Um, of course, we see that uh, most of the time. Uh, this form of justice can actually be beneficial for for the victim, but what impact does uh, does this have on the on the offender? If you you know if you can if do you have a case study if you can share something or your expertise on this one? Yeah, I've, um, so apart from me writing books and articles and running organisations, I've also had the the opportunity to, to facilitate cases, including hate crime cases. So probably I'll use one of the examples, that, um, which was a, a hate, we would call it hate incident, um, because what was happening uh, was um, uh, it, it, it was a Muslim family uh, and it was being constantly harassed and attacked by literally the neighbours. And, um, you know, the police kept coming back. Uh, it was not recorded as a crime. And as you can understand, if it's not recorded as a crime, then there's no further steps. But it was it was um, kind of neighborhood disputes um, level, you know, head incident level. And then at some point, the police um, said, how about we divert this to, to a mediation um, mm. and bring restorative justice to, to, to the discussion? Yeah. And what happened is that the two families were brought together after a lot of preparation. Um, and that's the, you know, the caveat, because you can't just bring people together. Yeah. You have to prepare them. And there is, um, you know, there is steps to take for that. And also they need to be willing to do that. Because if, mm. if the, I mean, we're calling them offenders. The story of justice doesn't use that terminology. We, we call them the harm party instead of the victim. So somebody who has been harmed. And someone who is harming, somebody who's who is causing the harm, yeah. um, and and those who are causing the harm, if they're willing to 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 come to a to to discussion, to a dialogue, then the preparation needs to 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 bring those two groups together in a safe manner that is consensual, right? Yeah. So the mediator knocked on the door, both families had a little chat prepare them, make sure that everybody's safe. And when they were ready, they came together. And then they realized 
that it was a lot of cultural misunderstandings, whether it was, you know, the, the smell or the noise or whatever it was, or why that was happening. And then the other way around, why, you know, it was building up, why the tree was cut down after the words that were said, and, you know, why it was building up. Um, and when that discussion took place, and then another discussion took place, the cultural barriers and the misunderstandings started to disappear. Mm. And what you have called offenders, it had... Um, that, so the outcome was um, that not only the dispute stopped, but those two families started to meet and they started to be real neighbours and supportive neighbours. And not only the conflict stopped and the case was never sent to the court as a criminal case, uh, to have a, yet another criminal case that has been prosecuted and yet more offenders in prisons. So we didn't have the case going down that road. Hmm. But not only that, you also created relationships between two neighbours that now understood each other and their cultural you know, backgrounds and why certain things were happening. But also they agreed negotiated solutions, you know, certain times for certain things not to happen, how things should be done, and they came to an agreement. And that's, you know, that's one of the examples that I, you know, I can give you in terms of the impact that it's having on what you have called as offenders, mm. because all they get at the minute through the criminal justice system is if they're like they appear in court, they hear what they get to hear, and then they're put in prison mm. where they become better criminals. Whereas if they have the courage to say, I will face the consequences of my action, and I would also face the victim that I harmed and listen to their stories and allow them to ask me questions of what I did and allow them to ask me, would you apologize or would you do something back to rectify what you've done? Mm. Then that demands a lot of courage and a lot of um, change within yourself. And that's why I say restorative justice causes pain. Uh, but that pain is what is needed to reconstruct yourself and recreate yourself and come out of it clean. Yeah, I mean that's a you know very very powerful uh, case study that you that you shared with us uh, as well. Um, is it is it that you know if if the person in this case let's just call the person the the offender right if if he or she commits any sort of uh, crime or does any sort of harm to to the victim and then he also uh, says that you know I, I will face the consequences just like you mentioned before as well that he will face the consequences but also they will face the victim as well and if the victim is uh, and if they sort of come to any sort of agreement can his uh, sort of sentence be reduced or does that is does it work in that sense as well or does he have yeah, to go in, into that sort of you know go to law uh, go to the court and Get uh, imprisoned or that's whatever. That's right. So yeah, so the, there is actually a provision now in 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 the law uh, where restorative justice uh, can be uh, provided at all stages of the criminal justice system. Mm. So it can be provided at the police stage. So I gave an example where the police uh, came, you know, the, this this incident yeah. came to the police's attention, and the police diverted the case to mediation. That's one stage. It's the early stage there. Then the second stage is when the police actually um, uh, cause the Crown Prosecution Service and the prosecutors get involved, right? So again, at that stage, the prosecutor uh, also, based on legislation, they can't divert the case to, to restorative justice. Then obviously the next stage is the court stage. So the court itself can divert the case. 
the court also has a stage within it, which is it decides on the case, and then it's the stage where you pass the sentence. So restorative justice is also allowed at the sentencing stage, and also restorative justice is allowed at the prison stage, so once you are in prison. So the law allows you to introduce restorative justice to parties at all stages of the criminal justice system. Mm. Now, depending on which stage you introduce restorative justice, and depending on the outcome of the case, which will be a mutual outcome, so the parties decide, the victim and the offender, as you said, then as part of that agreement, then you will have the results. So it could be a reduction of um, a sentence. It could be not to sentence, even not to sentence, because you diverted the case to the mediation or to the family court conferencing or the third court, and the parties agreed that they would do X, Y, Z. They would do this and that. And when that happens, then the agreement is enforceable as if it was issued by a court or as if it was issued by a criminal justice agency. Now, if the offender doesn't honor the agreement and the uh, practitioner, the, the, the practice who enforces that agreement is responsible for that and reports back that that agreement has not been honored, then the case either will go back to the criminal justice system of the state that it was introduced, mm. yeah? So yeah. it could be police, it could be CPS, and so on and so forth, or they'll go back and see why it wasn't done and provide support depending on the case. So it depends on which stage of the criminal justice system has been diverted. Unfortunately, the problem is that there's no awareness. So victims and offenders are not aware hmm. that they have this option. <laughs> and yeah. that's where, you know, shows that yours and discussions within your community is important to know that the law provides that. You know, yeah. you, you you can ask for it if you want to. They just don't know about just it. Don't know about it as well. Um, yeah, so, th- I mean, this is also, you know, why one of the reasons why we're doing these sort of shows as well, so, so we can raise awareness and more people can actually know about it as well. Um, Professor, in the in the in the long in the long term in the long run, how will restorative justice help develop a peaceful society? Uh, yeah, and, and and that is the key word, isn't it? Peace um, exactly. and peace between uh, our, well, first of all, uh, within ourselves, yeah. peace, uh, restorative justice, the values of forgiveness, kindness, um, respect, dignity, equality. Reading those values and how you practice those values on a daily basis, that's how you bring, first of all, peace to yourself. And if you can do that, then you can bring peace to your family and you can use restorative justice. I gave an example of it between me and my son. You can use that within peace with your family, with your friends. Uh, I do restorative justice in my own organization, bring peace to your own organization. I mean, we can all do that. Then that as a ripple effect, will 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 go wider in society, <laughs> but we have to start from 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 within. We have to start from ourselves, um, and the values that we all share, and they're all common, independently of what religion we sign up to. Now, with restorative justice, if we're talking about the criminal justice system, um, it's not an either or. And when it was first introduced in the 70s, and this was the main problem was introduced as an opposite of the criminal justice system. Mm. I've always championed, and I said, it's not opposite, it's an alternative. It's something that works with it. It's supporting it. 
Um, and then you can provide it within the criminal justice system. So, for example, the probation is offering it, police is offering it. You know, these are the criminal justice agents. But the majority of it happens in the community, in the community sector, organizations mm -hmm. like ours, different mediation centers. So the bottom-up, the community, as I said, version of restorative justice needs to work better with the top-down, the structured provision of restorative justice. And if that can happen and the two can coexist and be supported equally, then I think with the transformation, as I said, of changing from within and the genuine support of the community sector and the um, community-born restorative justice practices, then we could see a long-term impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hopefully, hopefully that is the, that is the case as well. Uh, and then, you know, we can sort of restore the peace in the world uh, as well. And as you mentioned, uh, also that peace, you know, having having internal peace, peace from uh, from within as well, so that we can achieve peace outwards as well. Professor Theo, thank you so much for, for, for speaking with us this afternoon. I know we took uh, quite some time of yours, but uh, we appreciate that one and your expertise and your contribution to the show. Thank you so much once again. And uh, have it's a lovely my pleasure. day. Thank you. No, thank you very much. And thank you for bringing awareness uh, to the Muslim community of restorative justice. There is a special week every year. The third week of November is International Restorative Justice Week. And we'd love to have you as part of our um, daily activities of awareness raising and mm. uh, the conference that we're organizing. So I'll, I'll be in touch to see if we can if we can help and continue the dialogue. But thank you very much for, for raising the, the issue and for inviting Absolutely. me. Absolutely. That's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Looking forward uh, to that as well. Thank you so much once again. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye and congratulations. Sir. Thank you. Bye. There you go. Another fantastic interview. And yes, I mean, that is something that we are very keen on, is to continue on our conversation with our guests and our experts um, around the world, uh, especially where we bring the awareness of various subject matters all the way from the uh, illnesses that we have from diabetes to cancer to mental health to other causes like climate change and obviously restorative justice and these are the things that we want to do and want to create peace and harmony in society not just at home not just in our local communities or or in our countries but worldwide internationally the work that we do and the work that we promote on the voice of islam radio and as always um, i haven't mentioned it at the moment uh, while i've been with you for nearly an hour and a half is that you can get in touch with us in the normal ways by just picking up the phone and giving us a call on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight uh, if there's any of these subjects that we covered in october that you really enjoyed listening to or even if you've got some suggestions for the year 2023 that you want us to pick up because we do obviously have good strong relationships with many people worldwide internationally where we do manage to uh, talk on conversations and continue on the conversations like we would have done with theo uh, as well so you know uh, give, give us a tweet as well on Voice of Islam UK and in Norway so what I wanted to do is continue on uh, as we approach the last half an hour of our discussion on what we covered in October and you would have obviously realized that we covered quite a lot 
and there were some amazing subjects. Um, one of the ones that I really enjoyed the most was about the increase in populism, and we're seeing it all over the world uh, in different countries. And, you know, has it been blown out of proportion? Is it just a phase that we're going through? Um, and obviously regret. There is the confusion of guilt as well um, in that and obviously feeling remorseful and obviously the ills of lying and the damaging it does not only to the person who lied but to the people who listen to it and the effects that they had to go through and believing what they said was true and the worriedness that that took place and obviously about restorative justice and now we're going to just talk a little bit about another subject Halloween and the the harmful innovations and what the Islamic point of view is about Halloween and, and has it been taken too far um, in certain ways. And then what we will do while I do the introduction and talk a little bit about this subject and then we'll, we'll be listening to an interview that we did with Imam Khalsa which was very interesting and it was fantastic. So what we'll probably do is end up actually uh, finishing off with that interview because it was so powerful but you know in conclusion there are many other ways for children and adults to kind of enjoy themselves as well in a meaningful way rather than indulging themselves in in kind of Halloween which we know are rooted in false tales and can hinder the moral development as well but so anyway what I wanted to do was just give a talk a little bit about it for about five minutes and then we'll listen to the interview with Imam Khosla, which I can assure you was uh, absolutely fantastic. But it is evident that Halloween is a day of the dead and the peak moments of sorcery, uh, divinations and occultists practice associated with harmful innovations. And this is what we know and this is what we see and especially when you watch tv and the films that are associated to it which start coming out and are released uh, during the period the annual period of halloween and there are many abrahamic prophets that are warned to keep away from the practices relating to divinations and sorcery and the holy quran is is no different than the holy quran and the coming of Islam in particular takes this subject to a step further by defining the wisdom and the logic in not partaking in any such harmful innovations. And it was done by introducing and explaining the concept of shirk, which we refer to an Arabic word, which we refer to in English is associating partners with God. And Allah the Almighty states in the Holy Quran, and it says this in chapter of verse 49 surely Allah will not forgive that any partner be associated with him but he will forgive whatever is short of that to whomsoever he pleases and whomsoever associates partners with Allah has indeed devised a very great sin and according to the five volume commentary of the Holy Quran by the second caliph his holiness Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed Mella be pleased with him. He states that the reference in this verse not only refers to idol worship, but also to such idolatrous practices 
that as are in vogue among common people, even among present-day Muslims, such as the adoration of saints and offering prayers and oblations to them. All such abominable practices are shirk in the sight of God. Shirk, which I said earlier, was associating partners with God. And the concept of Halloween tramples upon religion and the sanctity of Homes. His Holiness, the current head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, Mala be his continuous helping hand, provides us with the most crucial guidance relevant to our time through his Friday sermons. And during one of his Friday sermons about Halloween, he said that the reality of Halloween entails the belief in the existence of witches, evil spirits and satanic worship. While people celebrate Halloween on the pretext of having fun, it is entirely wrong and dangerous to believe in things that are supernatural for fun and Ahmadi children in particular should therefore avoid this even until recently some villagers would offer something to the children believing that it would save them from spirits this is also emboldens children to commit wrong acts for the sake of fun for example rude manners towards elders is becoming common movies also give wrong measures and in particular when children are encouraged to watch them by adults the result is that society will deteriorate and his holiness further states for us the biggest matter is the bringing of dead spirits as if equal to god and thus committing shirk which i said earlier was associating partners with god so you know have we taken halloween too far i mean this is something that we we spoke about um in october and which we will also give you further insight um on that as well i mean the halloween celebrations these days you see it have gone way too far and they continue to uh, go further and further and i wanted to also just add again on the friday sermon which i referred to earlier his holiness said that Rituals at Halloween are not limited just to wearing scary costumes and going door to door. Rather, some older children deliberately frighten people in their homes and cause trouble and disturb the surrounding population. And then there was a recent story in DH News on the 11th of October 2022, which highlights just how far people have taken this harmful innovation. And according to the reported article, four staff members on the, in a, of a daycare in the Mississippi terrified children with their Halloween masks, scaring children into tears. And reportedly, the staff members scared them for being bad. They loudly screamed and the children's faces chased them and laughed as whilst the children were shaking with fear and then with so much um, commotion and, and how upset the the children were the staff members were fired and I'll, I'll give you one more story as well um, the 
Another story reported by the Daily Record mentions how a household went way too far with their Halloween decorations and after they hung a dead body from their house, although it wasn't a real dead body, but only a uh, a depiction of a body hanging from the roof, it had nevertheless disturbed the neighbourhood and in fact uh, a neighbour slammed the household for such insensitive behaviour. The 57-year-old said that there will be people in the area who will have families who have hung themselves and I think it is disgusting. And there are so many reasons why um, this kind of behaviour is being taken too far, apart from the fact that such harmful innovations bring with them an extravagant spending. Christmas is around the corner and we're in a cost of living and we're spending so much money already and I don't know how people are going to be able to continue with the amount of spend that they do. I know many people have pulled back, but then it's just another extravagant of spending. And a story reported in Manchester Evening News reported that viewers of the ITV this morning um, show shared their annoyance over the Halloween tax segment and it showed that the Halloween decorations available in the market amongst them shown in the studio was wing reappear and it could cost up to £60 and also the LED inflatable pumpkin ghost that could cost around £40. Imagine that's £100 just gone there and according to Forbes Halloween spending is projected to hit a record £10.6 billion for 2022. I mean they were just some statistics and Islam does give clear instructions and asks us to be have a balanced teaching about how to spend money. And, and Allah the Almighty states in the Holy Quran, and it says this in chapter 17, verse 27, and, and give thou to the kingsman his due, and the poor and the wayfarer, and squander not thy wealth extravagantly. So, Obviously, in, in conclusion, I mentioned earlier that there are so many other ways that you can have meaningful fun. But I just wanted to end uh, before I play the interview with Imam Khosan is that His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, has repeatedly instructed Ahmadi Muslims to stay away and protect themselves from such harms. And in in a Friday sermon, His Holiness advises that Ahmadi Muslims and states that Ahmadi Muslims should avoid this and should instead focus on strengthening their connection with God in whose hands rests all real power. So, what I'll do is end the the summary of October. And thank you very much for staying with us and listening. And I hope you enjoyed it. And remember, you can always get in touch with us on a regular basis and tune in to the Drive Time Show every weekday, Monday to Friday from 4 till 6. I listen to some amazing interviews. And you can obviously sit, hear the repeats on SoundCloud as well. And uh, obviously ring in in normal ways and and tweet and retweet and uh, share the message and get involved with the conversation that we have on a regular basis and listen to our experts from all over the world with life experiences and on so many topics as you've had the first hour, which are very heavy that we covered in October on the political side of things. And then we went internationally as well. And then we brought it back home to how it affects us uh, in our own homes as well. So here's an audio clip where we interviewed Imam Khosr about the subject about Halloween and hope you enjoy it. And that's uh, me signing off. Thank you very much. Uh, We have with us um, 
Imam Mahmoud Qasr, who is an imam of the Amdi Muslim community who's based in Los Angeles, United States of America. Good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamu alaikum and peace be on you, Imam. Wa alaikum assalam and peace be upon you as well. <laughs> Thank good you so to, much. Good to I have you. I thought you were going to say New York by mistake. <laughs> no, 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 no. We, I, I was corrected a couple of days ago. <laughs> <laughs> by Imam Raza saying he's no he's he's changed time zones. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> so good to have you with us, Imam Qasir. Thank you for Thank taking you so time much. out. I know it's it's an unsociable hour for you, but yeah, no, it's been a while. I was waiting for you to invite me again. No, no, it's it's a pleasure to have you. Um, no, like Imam Qasir, we of course Halloween, um, something we talk about every year. Um, and when I was talking to Jen, Dr. Dr. Butler earlier, I mean, she kind of emphasized the, 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 this idea that, you know, believers in Halloween, true believers in Halloween are pre-Abrahamic uh, religions. They, you know, what we call today mythology um, in, in the olden days or the ancient days, they were, um, my understanding, that the, the, the understanding is that they were uh, numbers of gods or deities that people kind of looked towards um in in this respect of halloween is is from an islamic perspective or just from a general perspective does isn't that associating partners with god because god has always been there hasn't it isn't isn't that would be right. would that not from our perspective be kind of we've created these gods right right so interesting point is that in islam and i think in every culture and every society nowadays a lot of folks a lot of societies are questioning what celebrations they have and the way they question them is they go back to the roots right why you know why does america still celebrate columbus day you know these are debates that they're having now and the only reason those debates are coming up is because they're looking at the origin right the origin story and so in the same scenario when we look at halloween as a muslim um, typically with my kids i'm going to look at the origin story as well whether or not you know what it has created become now is irrespective of what the origin story is it's important to look at where the roots are and so as you were mentioning, the roots are very much so with this concept of creating gods, uh, this concept of creating the sphere, creating goblins and vampires, and you name it, all of these things have been created over time. And so it's very counter-intuitive um, for a religious person, right, um, to take this as just simply fun and games. It has uh, direct meanings, when, especially in its origin story. And so like you said, in Islam, there's a concept called shirk, mm-hmm. which is associating partners with God. And what's interesting about that is that in Islam, there's actually two kinds of ways to define shirk. One is an obvious way, right? Which is you see an idol and you start worshipping it. You know, you see a deity or you create a spirit of, so- of sorts, a vampire, whatever it is, and you mm-hmm. create that as if it has a godlike attributes. But the other part of it is where it's kind of subtle, it's more indirect, where you and I even fall prey to this kind of shirk, which is that, you know, we rely on certain things or we love certain things so much, whether it's our job, whether it's our car, you know, we, somebody buys a nice new, you know, Audi, and they love it so much that they're relying so much on it. I don't know why I said Audi. In America, they're, they're rare. <laughs> for you guys, they're probably diamond dozen, but... <laughs> But nonetheless, that love for things sometimes gets so excessive, right, mm-hmm. that it becomes like shirk. It becomes like associating partners with Allah. And a lot of folks have it. They have love for food or love for other things, and then they forget about God. But mm-hmm. here there's also another element where you fear something so much, equivalent to the fear you should have for God. 
Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the subtle subtleties of Halloween come in, where there is an element of fear that they induce in society, that you should be afraid of X, Y, and Z, or X, Y, and Z, or X, Y, and Z. And as a result, you know, people start to get afraid of goblins and ghosts and vampires and, you know, so many different things. I, I remember just uh, last year, my daughter just turned two. She barely started speaking. Mm-hmm. And because of the TV shows that, you know, our kids are watching, and she, her first couple of words were vampire and goblin and Halloween. I said, oh, come on, Lord, <laughs> this is not good at all. So we had to go back and correct all those words, you know. Um, but that's what I'm saying, that, that at the end of the day in Islam, we're very clear about the existence of God and God's role in our lives and making sure that we keep everything clear from any association with partners with God Almighty in any which way. Yeah. So Imam Muhammad, um previously Dr. Jenny Butler mentioned that, you know, um, they they celebrate Halloween because, you know, they pray for their souls and pray for the spirits. Right. What is Islamic stance on that and the souls that have departed? Especially, Dr. Jenny, I mean, the, the concept of Halloween being that, you know, they they meet in this kind of mm-hmm. mid-ground, um, you right. know, uh, um you know, th- Almost which is like not... they're stuck between uh, exactly. this world and the next. That's right? it. That's it. Yeah. So it's interesting because in Islam, first of all, we we welcome the concept of death. We don't fear it. Yep. For the simple reason that this next life is the life to come. It's the life of eternity. It's a life when you are, you know, said to be close and you know in divine, you know, in the, in a divine state, in a, so to speak. Um, so in that in that sense, in Islam, there is no fear of death unless you have a uh, direct connection with the world and you don't want to separate from the riches of this world, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you understand that this next life will give you that solace and that peace, um, again, if you pursue it in this life. So second mm-hmm. thing is that life after death is a reality. It exists in Islam. We believe it. And we actually believe that that life after death can start here. We can start having heaven here in this very life. You know, there's a verse in the Holy Quran that if you are blind in this life, you'll be blind in the next life. And what God Almighty implies by that is not the physical blindness that you and I may have um, or color blindness or whatever it is. It's actually the spiritual blindness. Mm-hmm. Many people think that once I die, I'll see God. <laughs> but in fact, in Islam, we are encouraged to see God here and now and make that effort to connect with God Almighty, become that, you know, that, that person who is close to God. Now, the reason I'm mentioning any of these layers is because in Islam, it's very clear that once you depart, your soul separates from your body and you are now gone into another, uh, in another place. Mm-hmm. And anybody who does linger, and it's only temporary, and it's not like you can communicate with such a person, but they're lingering because of their attachment to the world, not because they are holy soul, you know, souls that are going on to the world. They decide they're going to come back on the earth and, and, and or get some revenge. You know, whatever those stories are, mm-hmm. that, you know, so-and-so took, took something from me, I'm going to go and take it back. And <laughs> so many other instances that we, we talk mm-hmm. about. And these are all because of misinformation about what the reality of this life is. This is a temporary life. We are like tourists, you know. We're just passing by. We're sitting under a shade of a tree, and we're going to pass by to the next life. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the concept that exists. Now, on top of all of that, this idea that they linger in between does not exist in Islam. Nobody's lingering. There's no communication. Once you have separated from your body, you are headed to the next life. But there is going to be a day of judgment, a mm-hmm. day when God Almighty will stand you know, before everybody and, and make that, the, that judgment. And what's interesting about that, again, in Islam is that he is called not the judge, 
but the master of that day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which means that he will then decree as people are, you know, based on their circumstances. So this idea that somebody did one wrong and he's going to be lingering in the world because he can't get to the next life or somehow he can't enter heaven and he can't enter hell, he's just cursed. All of that stuff doesn't exist when you understand that God himself is a master and he can see even an iota of goodness and decide that such a person is going to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. So, um, Imam Mahmoud, having the you know the sad incident which happened in the, uh, in South Korea, is Halloween just a harmless fun, uh, or uh, and how is Halloween celebrating um, like affecting the society in any way? So I would separate this with two different things. What had happened in in Korea is is very tragic, mm-hmm. and it could happen at any celebration. It doesn't have to be Halloween. It could have been right. really anything. Uh, mm-hmm. It could have been Eid as well. You know, mm-hmm. if they had celebrated in. And for whatever reason, the protocols and whatever that was, for whatever reason, they, that tragedy could have happened. And it's very sad. And we, mm-hmm. we, you know, our our hearts are out there for all of those families who are suffering. And we pray for them as well. Um, and so that's why I won't necessarily say that that is directly linked to anything celebrating, in you know, with regards mm-hmm. to Halloween. Okay. But on the other side of it, you know, when we look at Halloween in general, irrespective of any one event, we find that there are some elements there um, and, and every celebration has various elements. You know, we have Martin Luther King Jr. Day, you know, in America. We have uh, Juneteenth that has recently started. There's so many different celebrations. And so we even have Thanksgiving in America, for example. And, it, you know, that even transcends other city, you know, other countries as well. And what we've noticed is that in Islam, it's very key to look at what are the origins and what is really the benefit of that particular holiday. Does that holiday bring about an upliftment of society? You know, what does it do? And so when you look at Halloween objectively, just sitting back and just observing it, mm-hmm. you find that it has certain elements that are actually uh, counter-progressive for a society. You know, The elements of imitation, for example, people are encouraged to dress like certain other people that mm-hmm. they look up to, aspire to, or fear, or whatever that is. And so this idea of imitation, as we know, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, on whom be peace, had very clearly said that if you imitate certain people, you're trying to become like those people, but you are actually falling prey to inferiority complex, right? You're right. feeling that you don't have enough in yourself mm-hmm. or in your own society uh, to progress a certain way. So all of those elements are there in one aspect. Mm-hmm. Other aspects is it encourages mischief, right? I know when in America, especially, you know, egging people's homes and, <laughs> and you name it, you know, throwing toilet paper on fo- folks' homes or mm-hmm. ringing the doorbell and running to the next one or... And the thing, some things get even more sinister and even more malicious and people are now putting, you know, the wrong kind of candy inside or, you know, things like that. So this idea of allowing society to have a free reign to just go and prank and harass whoever you want to and you're okay to do that. Again, that doesn't sound like the best kind of, you know, way to channel our frustration or, or anything for that matter. And then the third aspect is with children, which is we are encouraging them to beg. And I know that some people feel this is a far-fetched idea, but it's a reality. You're going home to home, you can say trick or treat, or you can say anything, give me candy, whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, you are encouraging people to go door to door and ask. Mm-hmm. And, and at, the, you know, at, the, at the will of whatever that family is or that person is, they can give you popcorn, they can give you candy, <laughs> they can give you nothing, they can tell you to go away. Right. Um, and so and so all of these elements are there and I, I would say if we just objectively look at them in terms of and I'm not even t- counting all the partying and the you know all the other stuff that goes along with it just in the name of Halloween I'm just talking about some of the basic principles that exist with Halloween as a society and you'll notice that uh, they're not the best elements to induce into a society I mean it's commercial, isn't it? 
I mean, it's all about money. So that was now. the element. That, that's about to say that that's not only Halloween, but yes, Halloween is this multi-million dollar, billion dollar uh, enterprise, and hmm. so that's why there's certain colors that are used. Everything's very marketed. You know, there's certain colors you'll see. Every store will have certain things. Um, no matter where you go, like you said, it's about getting your houses decorated, buying all that chocolate, whatever that is. Now, now you mentioned earlier, you know, that. the mindset of children. And, and we, you know, globally, we are going through a, a cost of living crisis. You know, we are go and we're right. beginning to see a cost of living crisis where it's becoming harder and harder for families to kind of keep up to date with all the the commercial um, elements mm. of all of these celebrations. Um, and of course, one of the greatest damages that is done within society is to the shaping of young children, the mindset of of children. I mean, you already mentioned even personally, you had to because of because of because it being it's everywhere. You know, you name it is there. How does how do we shape our children? That's they don't. Question. They don't get affected yeah. by, you know, the 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 damage being done by such uh, such days. It is. So it is very difficult, and I guess it depends on each person and how to what extent they want to uh, to do that. For example, my daughter had a Halloween party at school today, mm-hmm. and so we politely spoke to the teacher, saying you can have your party, but we enforce, you know, we won't be sending our daughter to school today, mm. and and they were okay with that. But you you and I know. That for this last whole week and a half, the entire classroom was decorated. That's <laughs> right. right. Yep. There was you know, postcards, you name it, everything was there. So then we had to have a heart-to-heart conversation with our daughter and explain it to her. She's six and a half years old. But it's a necessary step in making sure that our kids understand where we stand. And I actually noticed that it actually gives them confidence when they know that they have their own identity. They are Muslim. They celebrate something else. And now that we moved to Los Angeles, you see Muslims far rarer than you would in the East Coast or in, in Europe. And so whenever my daughter sees another uh, lady wearing a hijab, she gets so excited. Like, oh my God, there's a Muslim, like, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so, but these are part of the elements of, I think, how to save your children is give them that identity. Like, you know, make them proud of the identity that they have. And then explain to them why we celebrate certain things and why we don't. You know, why is it on Eid we're actually giving gifts? We're not sitting there receiving or begging, right? Mm-hmm. What are those elements that exist in our different celebrations? And also I think the last thing is, and I know this growing up, my parents and my grandparents and so many others, my uncles and aunties would enjoy the celebration of Eid. But since we've been here in America, I remember growing up, it wasn't as exciting as they used to make it sound like. Mm-hmm. So I've made an effort that, you know, let's make Eid exciting for my kids. Make it something they look forward to, you know. Well, that that's that's actually a responsibility on, on being part and parcel of being parents, so, isn't it? Correct. Absolutely. 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 Now the the the, split, the 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 flip side of what I was talking about. Yes, you mentioned the celebration and and and, but the extravagance on these days is also a a, um, a very important part um, that that one needs to kind of challenge, isn't it? Absolutely. So you're right. That's the other extreme, and so that's that's actually where the marketing, you know, moguls are, are most adamant in making sure they do, is get everybody extravagant, right? Yep. Get everybody to compete, make sure one house has certain decorations, get the next house, you know, make <laughs> sure he's competing with him, you know? And then same with, you know, what kind of chocolate you have and how many you have and how big the celebration is. It happens with weddings, it happens with every celebration, but you're right, 110%. And that's the beauty of Islam. It constantly encourages simplicity. 
mm-hmm. and a lot of Muslims will sometimes fight back, you know, push back against that particular injunction and saying, no, 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 we want to have our wedding with 600 people and we want to have this much food and this, this is, but they don't understand the wisdom behind that simplicity. The simplicity allows you to avoid extravagance, wasting money in unnecessary places. When you walk away from half of these celebrations, people have debt that they have to cover for year or years to come just to cover for one big, you know, uh, celebration that really just stroked their own ego and nothing much uh, beyond that. And so again, it goes back to this idea that understanding our goal in life, connecting with God Almighty, and understanding that simplicity is actually in our own benefit and not in the benefit of these big corporations and these companies. Wonderful. Imam Mahmoud Khosr, as always, thank you so much, brother, for taking time out for us (laughs) on the Drive Time Show. Next time, I'll come back with a better joke for you on a better day. And uh, please... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'll be waiting for (laughs) (laughs) one. Please remember us in your prayers. Thank you so much. Peace be on you, brother. As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum as-salam.